0: Hi, guys, and welcome to Hauntedology. I'm your host Megan, and I cannot wait to dive into this next episode. It is my belief that every city has a story to tell, and it's our job to listen. So let's see what this special city has to tell us today. The story I'm going to tell you is from Savannah in 1909 when a very unlucky passerby would end up discovering the horror that lay inside the old wooden house with dirty windows and a room for rent sign. On December night, 1909, Eliza Gribble and her daughter Carrie O'Lander were discovered beaten to death inside their home located on 401 West Perry Street in Savannah, Georgia. Not too far from them was Maggie Hunter. She was found clinging to life. She had also been beaten and had her throat slit. She died three days later at the hospital. The Gribble House was, you know, it was located on a seedier part of town where boarding houses with seedier tenants were finding the lodgings, so it wasn't in the best neighborhood. It was located on the outskirts of Savannah, at this point known as Frogtown. It was not considered a good part of the city, like I said, and it was close to the railroad yard, and a widow who was renting out rooms in a running-down boarding house occupied by two divorcees kind of fit right into the dubious reputation that the Savannah Townspeople had for those who lived in this part of town. The reason that this figures into the story, though, is the area housed many undesirables, including thieves, drug addicts, and unsavory characters and any of whom really could have committed this crime. The Gribble House was situated close to the railroad tracks, as mentioned, and some people theorize that the real killer was a railroad worker who committed the deed and then left the area. That
1: makes sense. It's how it's so confused and messed up.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Because we also have our own list of suspects, which we can kind of get into later. Mm -hmm. But right now, we're just going to talk about the victims and start from there. Carrie Olander was... Partially deaf, but it was found that she had been raped and afterwards her throat had been slit. In the back bedroom, her 70-year-old mother was found with her skull beaten in. The mother, Eliza Gribble, was originally from Cornwall, England, but had come to America during the Civil War. And her daughter, Carrie, had recently separated from her husband, who was staying in Memphis. Maggie Hunter, who was around 34 years old, had rented a room at the Gribble House. She had moved in the day prior to the attacks, and she had also recently separated from her husband, J.C. Hunter, and planned to make a living as a seamstress. Hunter was 30 years older than her and was also her third husband, whose real name was David L. Taylor. He also served in the 63rd Regiment as a Georgia Volunteer in the Infantry during the Civil War. Afterwards, he turned to crime and went to jail twice, once for stealing a horse and the second for bigamy. After the last stretch he did in jail, he changed his name to Hunter and was actually missing an eye and
1: walked with a cane. Okay, so he's a little less of a suspect.
0: Yeah, he still makes the list.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he might not be number one anymore.
0: The murder weapon was a bloody axe that was found at the scene. However, this choice was not that unusual as most households at that time. Had one either for chopping wood, killing a chicken, etc. You can look at Lizzie Borden's parents. They were murdered with an axe too. Very true. So I mean this was like prime time for axe murders.
1: That was the going murder murder weapon. murder weapon of choice. Well I mean think about it too though. You don't hear gunfire go off. They didn't have silencers back then. So um the axe, knife, whatever that that makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm and you're used to swinging them normally because everybody talked wood back then the gruesome story made the headlines around the country and the los angeles herald reported that 150 negroes had been rounded up on suspicion that the assailant was black this was based on the comments of a neighbor who said they had seen a black man running from the area of the crime like what you're gonna stand around i'm gonna run too margaret elizabeth maggie wise hunter who was barely alive at the hospital revealed to reverend john s wilder a baptist minister who was sitting at her bedside that her killer was her husband jc hunter police were immediately notified and then went and arrested mr hunter inside the home they found bloody clothing stuffed inside the fireplace maggie was interred at laurel grove cemetery as was eliza and carrie on february 23rd 1910 the chatham county grand jury indicted jc hunter willie wall and john coker for the triple murders all three men denied any involvement and on august seventeenth nineteen ten hunter was convicted and sentenced to death by hanging he appealed his sentence and was slated to hang on December 22, 1911. The same Reverend Wilder, who had heard his wife's accusation against him, baptized Hunter the day before his execution date. Hunter escaped hanging when the governor commuted his sentence to life in prison. On October 27, 1923, he was pardoned by Governor Clifford Walker. He then returned to Savannah.
0: So, more about J.C. Hunter, though. He was actually a painter and paper hanger, originally from Guyton, Georgia, and not only was the age difference odd between him and Maggie, but the fact that he often referred to her as his daughter and she in return calling him the old
1: man. That was pretty weird. Definitely grounds for divorce in my book. But I wonder if with that situation in the relationship, if there was no relationship it was some taking care of her thing. It, I don't know. Or was it she was sold to him by somebody? I mean They did that back in those days. just some crazy stuff going on right here.
0: So Willie Walls, one of the other men accused, he was a family friend and he was actually suspected of the murder because he had said that he came to see Maggie on the same day of the attack. And it was found that he had paid Maggie's rent at the Gribble House for an entire month. He was only questioned, but never went to trial since the case against him was way too weak and it was believed that he was maggie's lover
1: and see that's why i'm a little suspicious too why would he pay for her rent for a month like that i mean something doesn't add up there which gives oh jc jd what was his name jc hunter yeah it gives him a little more incentive i'm an old dude she moves out her boyfriend's paying for somewhere for her to live gives him a little more of an incentive to bump her off man
0: so now we kind of have a motive for JC. However, there is another accused. There's actually two more. The other accused was a man named Bingham Bryan, who at the time of the murders was a yard man for the property. And it was believed that his motive was robbery and that there was a rumor circulating that Miss Scribble had this old trunk full of wills, stocks, and other valuable things. And even though he was held, there was no evidence against him. So they eventually had to release him as well. Makes sense. The last on the accused list was a man named John Coker who had been arrested based on information provided by a neighbor and was released after it was found that the servant who had given the testimony was a cocaine addict and was hoping to gain some type of reward money for the story.
1: Oh, my Atlanta. Hmm.
0: This thing just gets more twisted by the second. Yeah. There's a lot of suspicious characters and people and places and things going down in this story.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because some of the stuff. The only thing that makes sense is the ex-husband.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the only thing that makes sense, but it's also in a seetier part of town, right near the railroad. (laughs) What if there's like a serial killer going from town to town, acting people, and hopping on trains? This is true. I don't know. However, people besides us also had theories about these murders.
1: I can believe that.
0: At the time, there was more than one theory surrounding the murder, especially as to who were the intended victims. The crime scene indicated that the first two victims were Eliza and her daughter, Carrie. This theory was confirmed when friends and family of Maggie Hunter told police she had breakfast with her sister, Mrs. Hewlett, and she later stopped at three nearby houses trying to sell some remnants of cloth to get money. Another witness then came and claimed that, they had seen Maggie Hunter walking towards Perry Street and she appeared to be drunk. Based on this timeline, she could have arrived as the murders were taking place. But I don't see how she can go from having breakfast with her sister to being drunk.
1: Yeah, that's, that's pretty, um, quick there.
0: Yeah. So that's why I'm a little hesitant to believe the drunk theory. Yeah. However, this wasn't the only mystery surrounding the crime. When six days afterwards, another witness came forward saying that Maggie Hunter had predicted her own death. On December 16th, 1909, the Morning News reported that Maggie had stated the bloody work would be done. The witness was... John Flatman, an insurance salesman who on the day of the crime had met with Mrs. Hunter at her sister's house in order to collect a premium. She didn't have the money and he told her that if she made the payment by Saturday the insurance policy would be intact. She replied by saying she did not think she would be alive on that date. And the man then asked her if she planned to kill herself and she said no. And that he would be surprised by how later in the day the bloody work would be done. Mr. Flatman said that Maggie was very sober and nervous when she spoke to him about all of this. And the affidavit provided to the police by this witness made them think that this was not like a random act of violence.
1: Yeah, I mean, if she predicted it. Or if she had a
0: feeling that something was coming. Mm -hmm.
1: There's reason to believe that's what was going to happen. Then, um, yeah, it definitely was not a random act.
0: Yeah. There was also speculation as to why no one had heard anything from the home as the killer attacked the victims, especially as the murders were believed to have taken place around 2 p.m., which coincided with the lunchtime of various people who worked very close to the location of the house. Another twist in the tale came from another witness who said that J.C. Hunter had threatened to kill his wife before. Police also learned that Hunter had papered the inside of the Gribble home six years before and was therefore very familiar
1: with the interior. He keeps getting incriminated in this thing.
0: Mm-hmm. So, March 1917, while J.C. Hunter was serving his sentence for the murder, a man named J.B. Gaving approached a Savannah policeman who was serving in the National Guard at the Mexico border during the hunt for Pancho Villa to claim responsibility for the murder of the women. He said... He had committed the crime of the partner and described the interior of the house with great detail. He was considered insane, and the confession
1: was discounted.
0: But, could this be the railroad worker that kind of skipped town afterwards?
1: It could, and how could you discredit someone who described the house perfectly? I mean, um, you know? I mean, if he didn't know anything about it, and, yeah, yeah, when, I think it was a blue house. Well, I, yeah, I, I think it was blue Okay, you can discredit that. Yeah. But... Describing in great detail. Yeah, no, I don't know that he should have been discredited. Mm-hmm. I, I, it just seems like somehow we're really wanting to take this hunter dude. I mean, why would? Well, they threw him in jail. Yeah, why would the governor and all that? Oh no, let's not kill him. Let's just put him in jail and this, that, and the other. You especially know,
0: especially since he's a former criminal.
1: Oh no, the man's got a record. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know everything. No. Regardless of who the
0: actual killer was, and how things actually went down that day. In Savannah, you can't have something happen like this without having ghost legends attached to it. Definitely. So in 1944, the Gribble House was actually demolished, and a 15,000 square foot warehouse was built on the location known as 234 Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. Paranormal occurrences have been reported there, and the Ghost Adventures team has actually even completed an investigation um back in May 17th of 2014. Wow. In 1974, the Morning News interviewed Mrs. John Monsey's, formerly Elizabeth White, who grew up in the area of the Gribble House before World War One, And she says she had heard ghost stories about the house on Elbert Square where bloodstains would appear mysteriously on the walls, and the house continued to be used, actually, after the murders for a boarding house, and different guests reported this phenomenon on different occasions. The Gribble House, while demolished in 1941, The Gribble House, like I said, was demolished in 1941, and by 1944, another building was erected on the site, which later became the Old Town Trolley Tours, where stories continue to persist of paranormal occurrences in the part of the building where the house once stood. When the Ghost Adventures team interviewed employees who work in the building where the Gribble House used to stand, complained of different paranormal encounters, especially persons who were African American. One person described a huge black mass come out from between two parked trolley cars. Could these be the restless spirits of the three women? Maybe, maybe not. The crime is recreated. Another really weird paranormal experience happened there by this person who was a college student and decided to visit Savannah, Georgia and take the paranormal experience in the Gribble House. They give you this like EMF, which is like electromagnetic field detector and a digital recorder. And he actually had a few different occurrences happen. Then the last few minutes of his investigation of the property, he was by himself in the southeast corner of the warehouse, which was like welteringly hot. And they said this was to allow everybody to feel a spirit's presence much more, since it's supposed to feel cold. Right. On the spirit box, though, he had asked how many soldiers are here with me? And the box replied, three. And he asked, are you all Confederate soldiers? And someone answered yes. Soon after, his EMF detector began to light up, which indicated the presence of a spirit. And it happened to be very close to him. And he remembered feeling like some sort of energy from, but thought this could kind of just be psychological. So he ignored it. Then the next thing he did was he asked, were you alive in the 1800s? And the EMF detector blinked once, indicating that they were in fact alive during this time period. And he asked if they were alive during the Civil War and received a no response. Then he began to ask, did you die in a major battle during the war? And as he said the word die, the spirit immediately left his present, allowing the EMF detector light to fade away. And he then asked, I'm sorry, was that a stupid question? And
1: received an answer of yes on the spirit box. Okay. Um, I don't know. Never been in that situation, so I can't really say a lot. But, um, the spirit box and all this kind of makes me a little leery to jump in there. But I don't know. There's too many, too many, too many different reportings not to believe something's going on. Mm-hmm. There's actually a little bit more left to the story.
0: After the spirit said yes, it was a stupid question, mm-hmm. the guy apologized and said that he didn't mean to be disrespectful. About 10 seconds later, the detector began to light up again, showing that there was, in fact, a spirit with him again. And he asked, were you a soldier during the Civil War? And the light blinked once. And he asked, were you a Confederate soldier? And the light blinked again. And he said, are you standing in front of me? And received no response, but the EMF detector remained illuminated. He Mm -hmm. asked, are you standing right in front of me? And the meter blinked once. Then he turned to the right and asked, am I facing you now? And the EMF detector blinked once. And he said, could you move closer to me so I can feel you? Mm Ooh. And on cue, the soldier literally walked right up to this kid and through him. He said he felt his cold energy all over his body and literally started right in front of him and ended right behind him. Like, as
1: the spirit walked through him. Okay. yeah, that, that, That's why That's fine. I like to play with this stuff. Fine, I'll read what you said. I'm not doing it. I'm not finding out this stuff, you know?
0: I don't know. I'm such a skeptic. I feel like I would. I'd have to have something like that to be able to believe.
1: Not take your word for it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah curious. Not that curious.
0: So that's not the only thing this kid actually experienced too. Before the soldier, he was in the northeast corner of the building and he felt a presence standing behind him and he thought someone might be there due to the cold air that was stationary behind him. And right after, his mom happened to place the meter right behind him and it lit up. So he asked if this was Paul and the spirit responded with the blink of a light. And right when the guy began to walk over, Paul left immediately. Who's Paul? I guess one of the ghosts that resides there. But then in the same area, he asked spirits to do something for him on the count of 10. A voice in the box responded, yes. And he started to count. And right after the number six, a voice came through and stated seven. Alrighty then.
1: (laughs) Well, it's a smart spirit. It can count.
0: He said, I continued to count and received nothing at the end of the counting. I guess technically they did do something on the count of 10.
1: I guess technically on the count of 10, I've been gone.
0: (laughs) Yeah, apparently he encountered smart ass ghost.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I might have said, Did it count a hundred and i have been gone by the time I got the ten. <laughs> <laughs> so then while he was close to the southeast corner,
0: about twenty, twenty-five feet away, his meter began to light up and he asked if there's a spirit there. And the light blinked once and he asked if my mom takes a picture. On the count of three, would they show themselves? And the voice on the voice box responded, yes. All right. And he began the countdown. His mom didn't take the picture on the count, but rather one too soon and one too late. The voice on the box said, late. (laughs) (laughs) And about about three seconds later, they stated, very. Apparently, they're not Uh malvolent or mean spirits. They're just smart asses. (laughs) Those were the main highlights, aside from, like, a couple of other odd things that he said occurred, but didn't really go into detail about them. But he said he can understand skepticism from all who were not present. Yeah. And, says that honestly, up until that last few minutes with the Civil War ghost, yeah, he could have believed
1: himself that it all was, like, an elaborate hope. Yeah, I noticed he took his mommy with him.
0: Yeah, I'm assuming they went on, um like, a tour or whatever. So, the building that all this happened in actually wasn't the Gribble House, as it was demolished in 1941. In 1944, the building was then erected on the site, and it was adjacent to some lots and became an automotive service center, and later... barn car for old trolley tours. And as I mentioned, it was even a boarding house at one point in time. So the address of the car barn is 234 Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. On top of everything we've already talked about, voices can be heard. A shadow man is known to have been seen running through the warehouse. People have walked out of the warehouse with scratches. A residual haunt known as the Lady in White, so this woman appears in like a white wedding dress, is seen in one of the corners of the warehouse. One room, known as the slaves quarters because that's where they used to sit is the place where guests get the most activity they're also in this area have been told to get out they've been touched and they've also had their hair
1: played with yeah i'm good but my thing is what is the, the woman in white what does she have to do with the three women that were killed what does things that have happened on that site that's could what i'm have been, guessing it could have been once the other building was building the grable house was torn down Mm -hmm. or okay
0: that's that's all i can guess but i guess people will think just because there's such negative energy there Mm -hmm. and there is such a sense of unresolved because Mm -hmm. of how the case ended Mm -hmm. that there is some lingering bad juju
1: okay from somewhere
0: from somewhere something Okay. okay i mean there there's no shortage of bad vibes in the city no no many people believe the portion of the building that was built atop the gribble house site at 401 west perry street is still tainted by the violence that occurred there
1: yeah i guess mean, that was violent that was that was bad yeah i mean
0: it was a very violent murder mm-hmm. very interesting yet another savannah mystery Hi, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Hauntedology. I'm your host, Megan, and I greatly appreciate it. I do all of the writing for these shows myself, so it means a lot that you guys to sit here and listen to what I have to say. Like I said, I believe every city has a story to tell, and I want to tell it. So don't forget if you want to... Deep up and not miss anything even social media wise you can always hit me up on the Instagram page for the podcast at hauntedology or my personal Instagram at megs underscore Noel that's N E G G S underscore N O E L or on Twitter at hauntedology and at Megan Noel Fit.